Welcome to the Lover's Hole. You are with Ian. And with Mike. As we reread and chat about the Aubrey Matry novels of Patrick O'Brien. Mike, we're still in the early chapters of Reverse of the Medal. Tell us where we got to last week. Give us a flavor of where we might be getting to this week. Oh, I'd be delighted, Ian. So last week in chapter three... Remember, we had some concerns on the part of the crew that Jack's luck had run out. But the surprise crew still works hard at finding this French-American privateer, the Spartan, on their way back to England. Everybody would like one more victory for the surprise. And after two false sightings, they spot her. And the majority of the chapter was this exciting chase that took them right across the ocean and landed them right in the midst of the Channel Fleet. And so there was a bit kind of, after all this excitement, we were stuck with the privateer sailing off into the sunset as Jack was being called aboard the flagship to meet what appeared to be a very unhappy admiral. (sighs) Yeah, it was still wonderful, but God, oh, we almost had her after those three sightings. And this week, we get this classic O'Brien epistolary opening as Jack arrives back in England and makes his convoluted way back to London. We revisit the packet ship. We take a post-chase journey. We get investment advice from a stranger, and Jack with his hopes up, sees his father in London. Ooh, a lot to look forward to, Mike. And it's strange, as we got into starting and making notes on the chapter, I was kind of, yeah, this is a sort of a build-up to the important events that I think are coming soon. But it's it's really, really great stuff. There's a lot for us to read behind the way O'Brien's going to build up this set of episodes that are going to be for Jack and also be for Stephen. So there's a lot for us to get into. Um, there's a lot for us to get into, as you say, exploring London. And it's really striking that O'Brien takes us straight into the world of Jack and Sophie. He takes us straight into the world of Jack writing a letter to Sophie. And that's kind of a a place that we've been many times before, but we were really, really hoping for something else, right, Mike? We were hoping for some first-hand description of some first-hand action. Absolutely. You know, we've had this whole buildup for I don't know how many books of the last voyage of the surprise and what's going to happen with her crew parting. And I know O'Brien loves Jane Austen, And I love Jane Austen. And I know he writes like Jane Austen. Jane Austen was just this classic letter writer. You know, some some books were basically all letters back and forth. And and it's absolutely, you know, it makes sense for that time. But I didn't want to be here about the surprises, last farewells and being broken up as a company in a letter after the fact here. (laughs) It was killing me. And then I kind of, in this description, you know, Jack's writing about how the crew's broken up, they've gone their way, and he can just hear like one group still kicking up Bob's a dying. And I thought, okay, well, at least, you know, you've resonated emotionally with me because I'd be singing that same song. And then I do a little research and it goes, no, no, no. Kicking up Bob's a dying doesn't mean a song. It just is kind of nautical speak at the time for a great row or a racket. And it might just be a variation on Bob's die, meaning fuss, confusion, pandemonium. Oh. And I was going, no, no, no. Just that they're you know, a bunch of fuss and pandemonium, a bunch of drunks on short. No, 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 no. I'm a dying right along with Bob. I want to be in the mid, you know, I want to be singing the blues <laughs> and it's some, some, not quite a sea shanty like fashion here. But then luckily, after, after we get this whole theory that perhaps Bob Zidai 
this variation because Bob was once a name for shilling and sailors ashore. They raise a ruckus because as their last bobs are being spent. But there is a musical connection. So, you know, this is this is deep research now. We're getting back to the early uh, 1800s and Metropolitan Magazine in 1835 said, I could dance a hornpipe and kick up Bob Zadayan. Or there's another, the monthly magazine in 1833 is, is writing about setting sail on a warship. It says, man the halyards, let go reef, tackles, clue lines, butt lines, light up the top, hoist away. Up, they went to the tune of Bob Zadayan. And I was like, thank goodness. This really is musical. And then I kind of did a little bit more research. And I realized back in the Ionian mission, we had heard yep. this before and you you could tell us you know, maybe remind us about that one ian that i just because this was a great passage <laughs> yeah this is the description of the sailors dancing on the foredeck right and they're they're kind of competing with each other to cut these kind of really flash dancing steps and jack is thinking about his own youth and his time learning these steps and the, the text said he too this is back in the ionian mission right um he too had danced to the fiddle and fife his upper half grave and still his lower flying heel and toe the double harmon the cut and come again the kentish knock the bobs are dying and its variations in quick succession and if the weather was perfectly calm in perfect time so there you go some dance steps and a song not just raising a ruckus right and so I'm starting to wonder now, Bob's dying. Is this a recurring theme in Jack's naval life or is it kind of a pair of bookends for the dear surprise? Jack is a youngster on the surprise, dancing away with the hands. Jack, you know, now hearing Bob's dying one more time as the surprise crew has been broken up and she's off to the yards. Ah, and that's, that's certainly what he's thinking about, right? He's writing reflectively back to Sophie about where the surprise is at in... Uh, you know, in her time as a ship, and we're a little bit undercut from this big, probably cathartic experience of the crew getting paid off. We're spared that. We're taken away from it in a right, typical true. kind of kind of O'Brien move. And it's funny as well. We like coming back to letter writing, to this epistolary stuff in Patrick O'Brien. And since authenticity is a big deal for him, Mike, it made me think, well, maybe you can actually be more authentic with the written word because we can know for sure from the written record what an 1812 British naval officer wrote like because his dispatches and you know writings are still to be read. We don't really know how he spoke, even though the written record and Jane Austen gives us an idea of how Regency people spoke. That's no more real than John Grisham telling us how 20th century people spoke. It's a facsimile, so we don't really know for sure. Right. Yeah. I don't want to come down too hard on the letters because the truth is, as you say, I love them. I love the way that the characters develop and we learn about the characters rather than having this omniscient narrator kind of telling us who they are and what they are. And and it's phenomenal to see what Jack puts in the letter to Sophie, what he leaves out of the letter to Sophie. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of fascinating that we can kind of watch his mind work here as he's writing. Definitely. And it's funny, we were expecting to hear a lot about this big event of the surprise being sold out of the service. But actually, Jack's now anticipating, but also slightly regretting, I think, his next meeting with Sophie. He writes in the letter that he would be low in his spirits if it were not for the thought of seeing Sophie and the kids. 
But as we're going to see in this chapter, he doesn't get out to see Sophie straight away. We might we might come back to that and think, why is it that he's not right? Like, if I'd been sailing around the world for a year and a bit or two years or whatever it is, like, I'd be, you know, I'd be on an express, whatever, charging across the countryside to see my bride. But Jack isn't. So he describes in the letter how, first of all, he's been delayed by the Lisbon packet showing off and running into the surprise's stern. Um, and he had to spend some time putting the surprise to rights again. He talks about the meeting with the Admiral when they encountered him in the, in the Channel Fleet, and the Admiral was a bit rude. He also describes the Admiral criticizing Jack for not keeping a lookout with this kind of secondhand punishment dished out, saying, yeah, the lookout should be flogged with a dozen lashes from the Admiral and another dozen from Jack. And Jack is told to consider himself severely reprimanded says ah this this privateer figment yeah this this was this was just an instance of a captain whoring after merchantmen and he suggests mike that jack could be useful leading a fire ship and i don't know about you my my antennae twitched a little bit when we got this fire ship thing because there's a cochrane reference here but not as we know it so we've heard in lots of the previous episodes about how episodes in Jack's life were taken almost as facsimile from the life of Thomas Cochran and told for real. And this is an almost episode from Cochran's life. Cochran was sent by the Admiralty to execute a fire ship attack on French ships anchored in the Basque Road, which is further south in the Vendée, mm-hmm. kind of halfway down the west coast of France. And in that episode, Cochran was placed in charge of this fire ship attack over the head of Admiral Gambier, who was a bit of a old poltroon, he was called Dismal Jimmy in the service, um, over the protests of senior captains, some very, very senior captains, friends of Nelson's, who thought it was ridiculous that this jumped-up Cochrane was given command of this, this fireship expedition. And then we read about how Jack describes this offer, this suggestion of a fireship mission for him. Jack gets the suggestion from the Admiral that maybe he could lead this fireship attack. He describes this harbour of Banville, which might or might not be a real place, this Someplace in Normandy called Blainville, but it's a long way away from either of the places that we're talking about. There's tides, there's coastal batteries, there's the fire ship's crews, there's the likelihood that they could all get knocked on the head. So Jack actually thinks it's a poor plan. He's not keen to take the Cochrane medicine on this occasion. So he actually says, do you know what? I gave that the swerve and I came back this way. Now, Mike, Jack managed to avoid picking up on one Cochrane episode We've got to wonder if in the book that's a little signal that there might be another Cochrane episode that Jack's character is actually going to go through and endure. We'll have to see. Right. I, I think it's so true. And and I love how O'Brien writes this, even though it's, like you said, it's kind of a, a little bit of a reflection of a Cochrane thing, but it goes a different way here. Some of our friends, especially Sloop Speedy on Twitter, have, have talked a lot about Cochrane and the Fireboats episodes and some drawings and everything. Jack here, like you said, he doesn't like the plan. He doesn't want his surprises, who he knows would all volunteer to go out there. And this idea that Jack doesn't go after it exactly the same way as Cochran here. We don't get to see that fire ship episode play out. In the writing and in the thinking, you know, we're sort of inside Jack's mind saying that he knows that all the surprises would volunteer but he doesn't like the plan. He doesn't like the fact that they haven't paid attention to the tides, the battery there, the fact that this plan is not going to allow them to get back out again. And how when you're on a fire ship mission, it's not like you're going to get put on parole. They're going to grab you up, knock you on the head, throw you up against a wall and shoot you because they don't like this. There's no justice. There's no parole here. So Jack is having none of this. 
And it's kind of the way I read it, it's almost like they also say something about if you take this, I'm going to put you up on the list above some other post captains. And Jack's not having any of that either. Like I'm not trading my men's lives to God jump the list of some post captains here. So I'm loving all this. But he also mentions that in this council where they're discussing this, they start talking about Lord Keith's preference for Jack in the Mediterranean, all the cruises he's had there, the cruises he's had since then, all the wealth he's made. They kind of infer that or believe that he's made a lot of wealth on this cruise to the Pacific. And Jack talks about, you know, to Sophie in this letter, all the jealousy it's caused in the service. He says, I had no idea I had so many enemies or at least ill-wishers in the service. And then after all this, so we'll kind of put a pin in that too, because, you know, as you said, there's this big division with Cochrane that comes out of his fire ship episode. Yeah, there's some divisions here that O'Brien's kind of putting in the back of our mind. And in the end, after all this, his way of being of service now that he's around, is to take the Admiral's sister to Falmouth. <laughs> Here we are back to bureaucracies and, and you know, services and everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, you know what? I need you to do something good. And you do, to, oh, take my sister to Falmouth. Yeah, <laughs> she can, yeah. And that, that's a really nice distinction between the real life Cochrane and the fictional Aubrey. Cochrane was a bit of a slightly paranoid, slightly preening, slightly narcissistic character and was really vexed that people didn't, completely admire him and love him. And he got really ticked off at people appearing to conspire against him. And he saw conspiracies everywhere. But, but when Jack says, I had no idea I had so many enemies in the service, he's really saying, I had no idea service people could bear grudges like this because he's not a bearer right. of grudges. And it doesn't occur to him to, to kind of hold a long-term grudge against anybody in quite that way. Brilliant. And, you know, we were just reminded of that in an earlier chapter of this book where, yeah. you know, back with the tripe and this guy that said got jack disrated jack got no grudge there yeah well well spotted so still in this letter mike having written about his encounter with and his farewell from the admiral he turns to writing about stephen and talks about the anxiety and the unhappiness there there's stephen's anxious not not about money no they're, they're being paid quickly enough for their prizes and stephen's inherited an unspecified amount from his godfather's death but there's anxiety about Diana. Mm. And Jack's thinking about telling Sophie about the rumors of Stephen's infidelity back in Malta with Laura Fielding. I think he gives that topic the swerve for reasons that might occur to our listeners. He leaves it out. But he does tell her that he's sort of bringing his followers, these guys who've been turned out of the surprise, they're coming to make up the household of the Aubreys now. He's sending Killick and Bondon and maybe also Joe Place down with his baggage to see her. And he says, as soon as I've finished with this surprise, as soon as I've seen the Admiralty, as soon as I've talked to some lawyers to hear about my court cases, I'll be coming out. I'm going to stay at the Grapes right now. He said he's pretty sure. He's pretty sure he'll be home by Sunday. And like I said before, Mike, I'm already thinking, well, that's a lot of days to be lingering in the capital. Right. There better be a really good reason for not running directly home to see your bride. Anyhow. Looking out of the window, Jack also notices, because he can see all this kind of naval infrastructure, he notices Telegraph Hill and the semaphore, and he realizes that the Admiralty would have known of the surprise's return right after she made her number. And that's a bit of a signal, I think, that, of course, the naval establishment might be waiting for him, right. but also the legal establishment might be waiting for him, and he doesn't know whether any of his court cases have turned against him and whether he's going to get picked up. Right. So he's traveling on the cartel, on this kind of 
neutrality-bearing semi-official ship that goes backwards and forwards between the two states at war of France and England. The captain of the cartel, a friend of Jack's called Harry Tennant, is giving him a lift to Dover via Calais so that Jack can catch the London Post from Dover, which is going to be the fastest. Jack, reflecting on the, the duty of a cartel and the attributes of a good cartel ship, and he's clearly not inclined to favour the one that Tennant's in command of. He thinks instead Surprise would make a perfect cartel for the Admiralty because she's fast. And he's trying to provide reasons, therefore, why the Surprise might not be sold out of the service. His rational mind tells him that a cartel, this semi-unofficial, discreet transporter of envoys and naturalists and French fashion dolls, should not be as recognisable as a Surprise. You know, being... Anonymous, even if you're a bit of a slug, is better than being highly recognisable. And we get a reminder as well that Stephen and Jack had actually travelled on the cartel at the end of the surgeon's mate, right, when they escaped from prison in Paris and came back with Diana. So meanwhile, in Dover, there's still this air of secrecy because Jack stays in his cabins. There are several passengers that are dropped off secretly before Jack in a different part of the harbour in Dover. And that's probably going to have ruined his chance of getting a seat on this London coach that he was actually kind of holding out for. But Jack missing that coach turns out to provide a bit of a kink in the story. Since he's delayed, he invites Captain Tennant to dine with him and he's relieved to be caught honest when he can't because even though Tennant's an old shipmate, Jack doesn't want to hear Tennant going on and on about his opinion about the surprise being sold out the service. He, he anticipates that he might get told about Tennant's uncle who almost hung himself when his ship went to the knacker's yard and Tennant saying, well, it certainly hastened his death and how Jack's not likely to get another ship. That, that's not something that he wants to dwell on. So instead, he goes to the inn by himself. And Mike, things turn out a little bit differently from this point onwards. Yeah. First off, we get this kind of surprising small interlude that he's getting ready to, you know, he's come off the ship, he's going to the inn, and he hears this young girl's voice, this little girl's voice, offering to carry his bag to town for him. You know, it's Margaret is the little girl. She's filling in for her brother, Abel. He'd had a horse step on his foot, and the boys had been kind enough to kind of give Margaret his spot so the family can earn a little bit of money here. And, and this, I don't know, in a funny way, kind of comes out of nowhere. I'm thinking, makes me think about Jack's girls who he's missing, back to your point about not getting home right away. So she and Jack each take a handle. You know, Jack sort of squats down to make it even. And when they get there, Jack gives her a shilling. But O'Brien writes her face drop. She, Jack finds out, has never seen a shilling before and doesn't know what that is. And Jack tries to explain, you know, it's worth 12 pennies. And, and she's kind of having none of it, looking at his, you know, the change in his hand. And finally, he asks her if she knows what a tizzy is. And I take it you know, a tizzy is a sixpence, right? I think it is, yeah. and, and she says, of course she knows what a tizzy is. Everybody knows what a tizzy is. And Jack gives her two, two sixpence, you yeah. know, being worth a shilling. Now, seeing the tizzies that she knows, her face booms. And I'm kind of thinking to myself, like a rhinoceros on deck, as we've had in the past. So what is this? Somebody is kind of in a world they're not used to, and they kind of don't recognize the value and how things work and stuff like that. I don't know. Just on the one hand, a pleasant interlude with this young girl. On the other hand, I'm thinking, O'Brien's oh, telling us a little something here. Yeah. Don't know. Yeah. Yeah. A few little signals, like knowing the value of, um, of money and being able to add up might turn out to be important. Right, right. <laughs> So Jack goes into the inn 
And he learns that dinner's not going to be served for half an hour. So he waits at the dinner table drinking sherry, asking around if there's a seat on the London coach. And as he suspected, there is none because all the other secret passengers got there before him. This inn doesn't have a post chase, doesn't have its own carriage that he can kind of hire for himself. But the proprietor sends a man to check with the other inns to see if they can help out. And dinner gets served. And we know that important things happen around the dinner table in Patrick O'Brien novels. Although in this case, it's not aboard ship. It's in the, the public dining room of an inn. And there are some other guests. And there's a couple of very, very pungent sort of memorable pen pictures painted of some of these characters. And the first one is the one who asks Jack if he has transportation. And he says something along the lines of, hast ever a leathern convenience friend? And without much explanation from Patrick O'Brien, we pretty clearly take that this this guy is a Quaker and a leathern convenience is a, a Quakeristic euphemism for a carriage. And he's asking if Jack's got a carriage of his own. And Jack says no. Uh, he says, but he hopes to have one soon. And he learns from uh, the guy in the inn that the last seat in town has been reserved by somebody else. A lean, clever-looking man in a fine black coat with gold buttons seated next to Jack. There's another person there, the Quaker's neighbour, a flash auctioneer-looking fellow who hollers that he had spoken for the Royals post-chase first, for his seat, that is. And Jack's neighbour... The solemn-looking guy with the gold button says he's already paid for the first stage of the journey, and the Flash guy says it's his, and the Quaker says he'll give him a lift. And there's this little scuffle, this rather sort of demonstrative little argument between these three apparent strangers at the table. So Jack's neighbour, the smart guy, the well-turned-out guy with the black coat with the gold buttons, invites Jack to share his chase since he's headed to London, and Jack's very delighted. And this is a, a generous thing. This is the kind of thing that Jack would do to anybody else, right? Right, right. Yeah. Fellow gentleman in trouble, help him out with a seat in the coach that you've hired. So they get talking, and the Quaker looks indignantly over at them, and he beats the chair down and flounces off. He walks off with this this flash cove, this commercial guy, and Jack notices that these two people are upset, and the new table mate, the black coat guy, says, well, he's no Quaker, even though he talks like one. He wouldn't really have acted like that. That way of talking in any case is a bit outdated by 50 years or so. So Mr. Darkcoat speculates that it's someone disguised as a Quaker, perhaps to escape creditors. And Jack thinks, oh, yeah, it could be. And my, I, I don't know how far we'll go with talking about this conversation with Ellis, as he, because that's what his name is, right. um, without, without too much spoilage. But it's really interesting to note how readily patterns appear for Jack to pick up. And he goes, ah, yeah, you know, tap a finger on the side of the nose. Not really a Quaker. Yeah. OK, I'm sitting next to somebody who's wise in the ways of the world, who's helping right. me out and who's a dinner companion. And Jack thinks this is all fine. And he agrees to meet the guy in the courtyard 15 minutes later. Yeah. And so, you know, I think I'm so glad you kind of raised this with the listeners, Ian, to say, okay, these are an interesting set of scenes that we're in, that we're about to be in, and they're all very important later. So even though there's a lot kind of going on and, and there's a lot of the story that we've been looking forward to hearing, and it's as if we've kind of shifted to something else, pay attention. <laughs> pay, yeah. pay attention here. So yeah. 15 minutes go by, actually 14 minutes go by because Jack is always early and on time and Jack arrives in the courtyard and this Quaker and the Flash Cove are fighting the man in the black coat. And, and this man, you know, is kind of being beaten and kicked and he's trying to hold on to this leather 
case that the Flash Cove is, you know, is he strangling him? The Quakers kicking him and they're trying to take away from him. And Jack, who O'Brien had said earlier that he was kind of trying to come up with something witty to say during the dinner conversation, but was slow at that, is never slow about getting into action. Jack just, you know, runs, takes his full 16 stone and jumps on this flash cove, knocks him to the ground. He strikes his head on the cobbles. Jack jumps up, turns on the Quaker. The Quaker, having seen Jack dispatch the flash cove, just takes off. And the black coat, as O'Brien calls him, this man in the black coat with the gold buttons, Jack's, you know, next door neighbor at dinner, uh, you know, says, please, please, you know, let, let's just go. Let them go. Let's not make an outcry. I really can't afford to have any kind of scandal in my position. Uh, he thanks Jack. They get in the post chase. And for a good bit of the first ride, the guy is just collecting himself smoothing out his clothing, getting his briefcase back in shape and everything. And he thanks Jack again and explains that he really could not afford the delay. If they'd called a constable, there would have been delay. He has to get to London as quickly as possible. And that a man in his position, there can be no public notice and no breath of scandal here. He explains that he's just returned from a confidential mission to Paris. And he had seen one of those two fellows on the cartel. So he was already suspicious. He explains to Jack that he believes the fight over the chase was an attempt to cover up what was really their attempt to steal these important papers in his briefcase. Because he says those papers would be worth a mint of money in certain hands and the news that they contain. And Jack says he hopes it's good news. And, and the man says, well, he thinks many people will think so. And then acts as if he kind of realizes he's been indiscreet and he, and he kind of coughs and he stops talking and he says, well, 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 look, it looks like that rain we've been anticipating is about to start. So he's kind of like, I, I, I can't talk about this. I've got to change the subject to the weather. And it's almost like this is latching into things that's Jack already knows about. He knows that there are people like his good friend Stephen Matron right. who have to do with confidential papers. He knows that there are moments when you should avoid scandal. He knows that things are not always what they seem to be. So Jack's being invited to sort of congratulate himself a bit on having been fortunate in finding this neighbor to share the coach with and being on the inside of something that, you know, he merits being on the inside of. And the conversation and this nascent sort of acquaintance, you might even say friendship, between these two people grows they change horses at canterbury jack tries to pay as the horses are changed but the man won't let him saying it doesn't matter the government is paying and he suggests that they eat at an inn in sittingbourne and he's eaten there often he says that he enjoys this is the black coat guy enjoys their particular wine that they have this french wine and that he likes to look at the very beautiful serving girl even though he says he's not a lecturous guy a company that's easy on the eye is always fine by him and he introduces himself he gives his name. He says, my name is Alice Palmer. And Jack replies with his Sunday name, John Aubrey. Reaches out and shakes the guy's hand. Yeah. Ooh, this, dear listeners, is a momentous meeting. And so maybe we should pause right there. What do you think, Ian? I think so. I think yeah, maybe one or two of us want to pop out in the yard and check our leather and conveniences. Right, right, right. Yes. Good. And anticipate that great dinner and sitting board. <laughs> Indeed. We will be right back after this break. 
As you can probably hear, we've been experimenting with our Boccherini theme music with the cello. We've put that at the beginning of the episode. We hope you like it there. Please tell us on our Facebook, tell us on our Twitter, tell us on our Patreon page how you're feeling about that. Would you like the waltz back? Would you like to stick with Boccherini? We'll listen to you. Meanwhile, back to the show. Welcome back from the break. We hope that you've been uh, checking your post chase and your leather and convenience. And we are back with... Alice Palmer and John Aubrey. Mike, it's funny. The last time I remember Jack Aubrey introducing himself as John to anybody, he was talking to an American official in Boston in the Fortune right. of War, and he introduced himself as John Aubrey Granson to the Pope of Rome. And that turned out to be a false step. I wonder. <laughs> yeah, good point, Ian. What are, what are uh, O'Brien's subtle ways of uh, telegraphing what might be to come here? And I mean, it's fair to say that we've already admired the way that this situation with Ellis Palmer is one that Jack falls into and feels kind of comfortable and kind of vindicated by. And this guy, Ellis Palmer, could not have said a more interesting and intriguing and charming thing than what he says now. Right. Because he says, oh, that reminds me of Colonians. Colonians meaning turtles. Turtles are reptiles of the order Testudines, also known as Colonia we learn. Uh, an engram hit of 1839, because calling turtles colonians was clearly a, a thing, turtles and tortoises. Um, so Ellis Palmer asks Jack if he's kin to the famous Mr. Aubrey of Testudo Aubrei fame, that most splendid of the tortoise kind. And boom, we've got natural history and we've got a connection to Stephen Maturin. Jack Coyley says that this tortoise Testudo Aubrei was named after him and Ellis says, well, then you must be Captain Aubrey of the Navy and you must know Dr. Maturin. And then, Mike, we're away with this conversation right. with, with Palmer. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's just like Ellis is kind of reeling him in here. He says he's read all of Maturin's non-medical works. He heard him speak at the Royal Society, at the Institute. And even though Ellis says he's parliamentary drafting is his, his day job, his occupation, he is a naturalist. And now Jack says, ah, to himself, you know, Palmer must be one of these emissaries that go back and forth to Paris on the cartel. O'Brien's already told us that it's all to do with you know, these government negotiations and naturalists and naturalist specimens that go back and forth. And here Palmer seems to embody both of these. So they talk about one of Jack's favorite subjects all along the ride about Stephen. And they talk about Stephen over dinner at Sittingbourne. And Jack so wishes that Stephen was with him because he says, you know, as much as I enjoy wine, Stephen enjoys the fine wine even more. And this is excellent wine here. And Ellis orders another bottle. So we're going to get really into our cups. And you can tell Jack is in his cups because he tells Palmer Stephen's dog watches curtailed you know, witticism. And this time we get it in all its explanatory detail, the way that a lover would need to hear it to understand it here. And, and Palmer laughs loudly here. And Palmer, you know, and it's fascinating to watch, especially as we say, as you, as you kind of think back later, Palmer starts to talk very gravely several times at dinner, but changes his mind. Again, it's that, you know, like we had in the coach. Oh, but but it's about to rain outside here. So when they're riding in the chase alone, he tells Jack he's been thinking about how he can best express his gratitude to Jack. 
you know, and Jack says, no, 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 you don't have to do any of that. No, no, no. You know, he's, Palmer's kind of saved him from this fight and let him get away here. And Palmer says that a man, you know, a gentleman in your position, you really just can't give them a considerable sum of money, but it mm-hmm. might be acceptable to give him some information, which, and O'Brien writes, would lead to the acquisition of the same amount or indeed more. And, and Jack, I think we read Smiling in the Dark, says, well, that's very kindly. And uh, Palmer says it actually would require, though, the, the, the person getting this information to have some money or, or some friends who would advance it, say, you know, credit with an agent or a banker. And then Ellis quotes, for to the rich shall be given, you know, and only to the rich. So, you know. Those who have much get even more, right? So Jack says, well, he's neither rich nor destitute. And now Palmer drops the bomb here. He says that he and his principal have been negotiating peace in Paris and that that peace will be signed in three days. And that when the news is public, government stock and many commercial shares are going to rise significantly. And we kind of had this, you know, earlier in the book, what's been going on. We've had allusions to this. So I think Jack's mind's already been preceded or seeded with the idea that, wow, somebody who knows about this ahead of time could make a lot of money. Yeah. And the the text takes us straight into that. Good Lord above, said Jack. A man who bought now, said Palmer, would make a very great deal of money before next settling day. He might borrow or pledge his credit or make time bargains with absolute confidence. Talking about taking long positions here. Yeah. But is it not wrong, asks Jack, is it not wrong to buy in such circumstances? <clears throat> These days, mate, it's illegal, but never mind. Oh, dear me, no, says Palmer, laughing. That is how fortunes are made in the city. It is not wrong, either legally or morally. If you knew for certain that a given horse was going to win a race, it might be said that it was wrong to bet on it because you would be taking money away from the other man. But when stocks and shares rise and you profit by the rise, you are not taking money from anyone. Apart from short sellers, shoving it right up there. Anyway, never mind. Right, right, right. (laughs) But when stocks and shares rise and you profit by the rise, you are not taking money away from anyone. It is the country's or the company's wealth that increases and you profit by the increase harming no one at all. Very, very shallow moral ground here. And, and Jack's not a very knowledgeable cove in these matters. He's probably going, no, 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 no. oh, okay, great. All right, I get it. Right. Uh, victimless crime. Of course, he says, it cannot be done on a very large scale for fear of disturbing the money market. Oh, says Jack, disturbing mm. the money market. Are right. you acquainted with the money market at all? Not I, said Jack. I've studied it closely for many years, and I do assure you that upon occasion it is as nervous, irrational, and skittish as a foolish woman given to the vapours. And a very well-chosen simile for Jack, where he is now with the attitudes that he might have to women in his life. Anyway, disturbance, he says, upsets the market for a long while, which has a very bad effect on the country's credit. In cases of this kind, therefore, government limits the information to a small number of people, all of the men, masculine pronoun there, all of the men who can be relied upon to act with discretion and not to exaggerate. What would exaggeration amount to? asks Jack. Anything much exceeding 50,000 in omnium in government stock would probably be frowned upon. Investment in commercial shares could, of course, be spread out and therefore disturb the market less. 
but even there I do not think much larger dealings would be approved. <laughs> there is little danger of my being thought indiscreet, said Jack, laughing, <laughs> and then much more earnestly, I am most uncommonly obliged to you, sir. It so happens that I do have a certain amount of prize money in hand, and like most men, I should be happy to see it increase. May I speak of all this to match her in? Um, Mike, there. Something has been planted deep inside Jack's brain there. Something's been planted deep inside this story, and we're going to watch as it unfolds, I think. Right. And, and, and it's fascinating. So you're thinking, okay, so we've just said we can tell a few men about this. Jack says, can I speak about this to Matron? He knows that Palmer really likes Matron a lot. He knows that he's Jack's particular friend. But Palmer says that really won't do, given the confidential nature of the information. So it's really interesting kind of watching. It would have been really easy to say, oh, yeah, just you, you and Matron. But he doesn't, right? He tells Jack, you know, like, it's even important just for you to buy through multiple people keep it confidential. He says, now you could urge Dr. Matron and and perhaps a few other particular friends to buy in moderation. You know, you could urge it very strongly though, without citing any authority, nor of course, betraying my confidence. And we all know about Jack and his honor. Jack is certainly, oh, if, you know, if he's taking this in confidence, he's not going to take. And Palmer asks if Matron understands the stock exchange. Jack says he doubts it. And Palmer replies, yet so philosophic a mind might well contemplate the city and observe the conflict of greed and fear in the mind of its inhabitants, symbolized by the stock exchange quotations. But at all events, perhaps he might care for a list of the securities most likely to appreciate or rather likely to appreciate most. I should very much like to mark my esteem for him, although only at such a distance. You might even find it useful yourself. It is the fruit of much study. On the one hand, this sounds like, wow, this guy is really being kind to Jack. And on the other hand, there's that thing of like, well, you're talking about cooling out the mark and really reeling somebody in. Oh my gosh, what's going on here? Yeah. And uh, maybe I'm going to say right now, we'll talk about this conversation with Ellis. And as you can tell, we're, we're pointing out that it's not what it appears to be. If you don't want to hear any more about that and you're not sure what's going to happen in chapters four, five, and six of this book, then uh, maybe skip to the end of this podcast. <laughs> for, the, for the next 10 minutes, well, let's just talk about it. Let's just talk about it. Because Ellis is entrapping Jack Aubrey. We'll read and discover and discuss exactly how he's entrapping him, and that'll all be unfolded. But Mike, it was, it's kind of chilling the way this is set up. And the more you think about it, the more you can see that there are things being put in place that made this a really cold, professional, calculated assault on Jack's trust. The reference to Stephen, you know, um, I can't remember his name, the guy with the silver mines, the projector, right, who, right. Uh, who, who reeled Jack in for a big sum, was sort of playing on Jack's ego and vanity a little bit. And it was, it was, it was tragic for Jack in terms of his financial health. But it's a lighthearted thing, right? Ho, ho, ho. Jack Ashore gets taken for a ride by one of these confidence tricksters. But this is a different order of confidence altogether. The guy right. doesn't appeal to Jack's vanity. He references his acquaintance and friendship with Stephen Maturin, talks about philosophy, uh, talks about confidentiality within government. It's all super carefully planned to appeal to Jack's absolutely higher, absolutely noblest self. 
Yes. You know, his, his attachment to his particular friend, his trust in the establishment and his trust in the state. And it's appallingly professional. It, it really is. It really is. And we're, you know, we've we kind of gotten onto this beat earlier about kind of deception at the highest levels. You know, we've got another subplot running through here. Yeah. Um, so I think it's going to be fascinating to watch this play out. And and for those listeners who didn't want any spoilers, we'll now get back to the chapter. <laughs> and, and so it's okay. That was a great big stick a pin in this, as, as we normally say here. So the next day, Jack has this list of securities in his pocket. At, it, he's in his club in London, except now O'Brien tells us the list is ticked, crossed off, scored through, and heavily annotated. And Jack is cheerful, but very, very tired, light in heart, heavy in body. He had talked through the night with Palmer in the coach. He'd adjusted to walking on land again. So he's been walking all over London and it's, you know, that unforgiving streets versus the deck of a ship here. He's called on his lawyers, his lawyers about his business dealings. And, and he's learned that really not much has changed. It's not probably cases aren't going to be heard until next term. He visited his prize agent and was kind of in for a nice prize there. He's got some money on some prizes that Jack had kind of forgotten about. The money's already for him. He goes to his bank, whores, that great pun <laughs> that we've talked about from many books ago. And, and Mr. Whore himself has said, you know, steps up to the teller as Jack is in line to make some withdrawal. And says, ah, this is Captain John Aubrey of the Navy. I believe we can provide gold for him. So Jack, whereas everybody else is getting paper, Jack's seen as a model citizen. He gets to take home a pocket of some gold here. And he visited his stockbroker and his father's, maybe we should say shadier, stockbroker, Mr. Sharp. You know, a great name. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Sharp. What a great name for a, yeah, there are flats and sharps. I'm trying to remember, this has come up somewhere else recently as well. Yeah, that's when, uh, when Jack was playing cards with Andrew Ray, the first time he met Andrew Ray. Thank you. Exactly right. Yeah. You know, O'Brien writes, even for one as little used to business as Jack, his establishment, meaning the stockbroker Sharp's establishment, gave off an indefinable air of malpractice. Yeah. So very shady guy. And as, as Jack is talking to Sharp and doing business with him, Sharp tells him that Jack's father is in town and doing well. And Sharp kind of goes through a number of machinations to understand why Jack is buying these particular stocks now. But Jack, who's, who's you know, thinking to himself, he's very used to dealing with scrubs, doesn't doesn't divulge, doesn't tell him. And O'Brien writes that Sharp's confidence did not extend to the direct question. And we've loved this, you know, in these times, you know, I can't I can't go above my station and ask a direct question here. Yeah. So Jack takes a coach back to Whitehall. And fascinatingly enough, in this coach ride, he passes the Admiralty and Jack nods at it. O'Brien writes, you know, nods at the Admiralty, that font of intense joy and deep distress. And then he walks through St. James Park to his club. And so this is, this is to me, kind of a real signal. Wait a minute. Jack's been in London now. He's been here another day. He goes past the Admiralty and doesn't go in. He's clearly on a mission, but it's not a sea mission by any stretch of the imagination. No, and it, it, it had a little tiny resonance there of a bit of kind of Catholic ritual 
going back to the the, the, the oh. papists and Sam a couple of times, uh, he genuflates. He genuflates to the ad. Oh, and, and and they call it a font. I don't think that's an accidental uh, metaphor there. Nice, nice. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Oh my goodness, good. And we're spending this day, it's funny, we're spending this whole day on the streets of London with Jack and we're following him as he, first of all, feels lighthearted, but then also feels tired and he makes his way to his club. And we read in the text, it says, he was fond of London and he liked his walk, but now he was quite done up. He called for a tankard of champagne, very noble quantity of champagne to drink right. as first first snifter of the day he called for a tankard of champagne and sat with it in an easy chair by a window overlooking the street within him the spring of life began to flow again lapping gently over his bruised heels and blistered feet and cheerfulness even the ebullience of the early morning rose even faster as he reflected upon the immense amount of business he had accomplished that day Presently, he would gather himself together, rise up and go to the grapes. There he might possibly find a letter from Sophie and perhaps run into Stephen. And at last he would have word of him. And it's touching, isn't it, Mike, that even though he's kind of quite taken up now with this idea of this uh, the stock buying scheme and all the money that he hopes to make, it's tiring him. And what, what really gives him joy is thinking about life and thinking about the, the happiness of being back with Stephen and being back with Sophie. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And as we said before, we're being led deeper and deeper into a world where he feels like it's okay to hang around in London rather than head back to the countryside and see his wife. Because this stock market scheme could free him and Sophie of debt. So maybe there's part of his brain is going, there's a rational reason why it's a good thing for me to hang around in London. And maybe there's part of his brain is thinking, it's not a bad thing if I postpone for a few more hours or even days the moment when I go eyeball to eyeball with Sophie and talk about my irregular connections and my illegitimate African son. Right, right. Yeah. How did she come out of this meeting with Sam Panda? You know, I'm sure this is in the back of his brain, as you say. Right. Yeah. But we're expecting that so strongly, Mike. We're looking forward to hearing about that. I have a feeling that O'Brien is going to make life complicated for us. Right. Well, and, and it's funny. We get another one of these, just like sort of the little girl scene carrying his bag. There's another thing that's just a little kind of, I don't know, this sort of interloping small little thing. Um, Jack's all happy. And then immediately his happiness is interrupted. O'Brien writes, he smiled and the smile was wiped from his face by the approach of Edward Parker, a former shipmate. I don't remember Parker at all. And O'Brien kind of fills us in that Jack has nothing against Parker, but that, that he really doesn't want to hear anybody commiserate about the surprise. And, and Jack sees a way out. And, and this was a fascinating thing. He says that, you know, O'Brien's telling us Parker has many things. He's got a good naval career because he's brave and he's got decent skills and he's got a naval family. He has a high likelihood of one day raising his flag and you know, becoming an admiral. He's slim. He's handsome. He's, O'Brien writes, much caressed by women. And, and even though he has all of this, he valued himself only on two qualities that he did not possess. The ability to ride a horse like the cove in the poem and to drink any man under the table. And and, and there it's kind of like, oh, God, you know, that our ability and our self-awareness. So I've got all this stuff, but that's not what's important to me. The important thing is I'm a great horse rider and I can drink any man under the table. But 
actually, he can't do those. But Jack knows about these weaknesses. And so when Parker expresses his regrets about the surprise, Jack says, never mind. This is St. Groper's Day, the patron of toppers. And no tears on St. Groper's Day. William, a tankard of the same for Captain Parker. And I'm, I'm at a bit of a loss here. And so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of researching away going, St. Groper, I don't know oh. St. Groper, can't find any reference anywhere to St. Groper or St. Groper's Day. But, you know, when it says the patron saint of toppers, this is kind of an archaic literary term meaning to drink, you know, people who drink alcohol to excess, especially on a regular basis. So, yeah. you know, I, it's almost like Jack is saying, yes, yes, yes. This is all about drinking to excess because I'm, you know, I'm going to target your weakness here. So he's, you know, expressing this to get Parker and get him out of his way here. But I was kind of fascinated by this use of groper that, it, you know, another meaning of that is is somebody who's kind of searching blindly, uncertainly yeah. feeling his way. And I'm thinking, yeah, Jack's kind of maybe this is St. Groper's Day because Jack's doing a little bit of this in his morning mission here, kind of blindly his way. But back to Parker, Jack says, St. Groper. And, you know, he's kind of holding up his tanker and his immortal memory in one heroic swig wastes not a drop. So they chug these tankards. And Parker, of course, has to immediately order another tankard for both of them. Yeah. He They down that again. And Parker now finds himself under the influence and, and hurries from the room here. Yeah. So by strange coincidence, somebody has walked in off the street who knows Jack, got him a few more glasses of champagne into his day and walks off the scene again. And what's going to happen next? Jack's looking out of the window up and down St. James's Street. Uh, He's watching the people on the street. He sees many gorgeous officers from the palace moving quickly. That'd be um, St. James's Palace, because at the bottom of St. James's Street is St. James's Palace, which is the, the diplomatic court where the monarchy of Great Britain does its diplomatic business many gorgeous officers from the palace move quickly for fear of this coming rain shower dashing into the clubs on st james's street when most of the officers are gone there are civilians on the street and jack regrets the turning tide of fashion he regrets that fine colored coats of his youth were losing more and more ground to black giving the pavement a mourning air he sees his father's club buttons across the street where Jack is a member, just as he's a member at his own club, which we believe is called Blacks. But he doesn't like it as it's all exceedingly rich men, many dukes, and a fair number of blackguards, many of excellent families. Oh, Mike, there's, there's, there's a little bit of the, the real world geography of London's gentlemen's clubs here, if you want to dig into it a little bit. This part of London, sort of St. St. James and the western end of town like this, near Buckingham Palace, is where lots of the gentlemen's clubs are. And there are pretty much two groupings there are what I would call the 19th century meritocratic clubs of um, people who are worthy. So clubs like the Oxford and Cambridge, the Army and Navy, the RAC, the Athenaeum, the Travellers Club, the Reform Club, they're all on Pall Mall, which is just around the corner, a quarter of a mile away. And they all have big brass plaques and flags and commissionaires, and you know that you're walking into the Athenaeum or the Oxford and Cambridge or whichever it is. St. James's Street is where the old aristocratic 18th century gentlemen's clubs are the weekend hangouts for wealthy landowners coming into London who need a uh, a place to, to 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 put their bag down. 
and they're really still there, but and they're in these beautiful Regency buildings on St. James's Street, but you can't tell that they're there because they don't have plaques and brass poles out of there. So we're talking about clubs like Boodles and Brooks and Whites, and they're all still there. They all still really exist. Um, interestingly, Whites is the oldest. You've got to wonder a little bit then why O'Brien chose to invent a fictitious club with the name Blacks. There's also a real-life club with the name Whites. Um, Whites is at the top of St. James's Street. It's the oldest of them, I believe. It's founded in the actually in the late 17th century. Notable members of White's Club include Prince Charles, the Prince of Wales, Prince William, the Duke of Cambridge. Once upon a time, the British Prime Minister David Cameron was a member at White's, but he resigned uh, quite a while ago because the club refused to change its men-only members policy. So these clubs are absolutely part of the establishment and sitting in a bow window, looking up and down St. James's Street at who's coming or going was absolutely really... Uh, a thing. And Jack, interestingly, sees many people that he knows. He sees Ray of the Admiralty walking into Buttons, into Jack's father's club, with a man that Jack doesn't know. Stick a pin in that. Yeah. He sees a man in a familiar bright blue coat. Not these drab, modern, wiggish, nearly Victorian black and grey coats. He sees a bright blue coat, somebody with the old style. It's Jack's father, General Aubrey, walking in. And O'Brien writes, at one time, it must have been possible to love General Aubrey, since he had married a thoroughly amiable woman, Jack's mother. But for the last 20 years and more, even his dogs felt no affection for him. His mind was almost wholly taken up with the notion of gaining money by some expedient or other. At one time, he had felled all the timber on their land, although the trees were not even half mature, thus doing Jack a sad ill turn, Jack as his then inheritor, doing Jack a sad ill turn at almost no profit to himself. And he now associated with some very odd creatures on the fringes of banking, insurance and property development. He had also blasted Jack's chance of inheriting an impoverished but repairable estate by marrying his dairymaid at the cost of a swinging settlement and by begetting another son. And not the most flattering picture of somebody that we already know in a bad light, which is General Aubrey, right? Right, right. This, this guy that Stephen Hope would choke on his next bite and <laughs> choke to death. Yeah, and we, we've got the ultimate opprobrium from Patrick O'Brien, which, you know, somebody had disliked by their own dogs, not in great shape as a person. Absolutely. Well, it's funny. Jack sees him, and, and Jack had already written his father a letter urging him to put whatever he could into this list of securities and, and telling him that the source of recommendations was secret. And Jack had intended to kind of go across to the club and leave that. But O'Brien writes, seeing that tall, bony figure grasp the railings to heave himself up the steps, you know, that picture that Jack has. Jack decides that, you know, he should really go speak to him, see how he's doing. And his mind warns him, Jack's mind warns him that if he goes over there, his father may ask questions. But Jack kind of decides, he's kind of, you know, arguing with himself that, you know, he can say he's given his word. He has to maintain his silence. So Jack goes over, his father greets him, learns that Jack's been in the Pacific and says that Sophie must be pleased to see him. And, and O'Brien tells us that the general is so pleased that he's actually remembered Sophie's name. He's so pleased that he asked Jack, you know, what do you like to drink? It's kind of, <laughs> I think maybe he might not have uh, invited him in, but since I've done this, yeah, yeah here, come on, have a drink with me. Um, and, and Jack tries to pass on having a drink. He's kind of saying, you know, look, I've got an empty stomach. I've already had a couple of tankards of champagne. 
And General Aubrey tells him, you know, don't be a milksop. You've got to come on. And, and champagne's just the thing. We'll stick with that. So he orders a bottle of champagne for the two of them. Jack does the courteous thing. He asks about his stepmother and her son. And General Aubrey says, a couple of silly bitches, both of them perpetually lamenting. But I dare say Sophie will be glad to see you. And I thought, wow, this is this interesting thing. Obviously, you know, General Aubrey, not in domestic bliss, but somehow, again, reaffirming that Jack is here. Um, Mm. And and Jack kind of finishes saying, you know, that, that he certainly hopes that she will be saying that he hadn't seen her first because he had arrived on the cartel which had stopped at Dover, so he'd come up for the coach to London before going home. So kind of an interesting way to get the cartel back in the conversation. Yeah, really interesting. And by the way, if we think about how all of these encounters might perhaps, they were either fortunate for Ellis Palmer and the people he's working with, or they were actually organized. It makes you wonder, how was it that Jack ended up coming off the cartel and only having access to the one coach? How was it that he ended up bumping into his father? How was it that he ended up bumping into, into Parker? All kinds of coincidences going on. Right. Ah, so anyway, the general orders a magnum of champagne, as you said. He introduces Jack to his friends. Um, the stockbroker tells the general that he and Jack are old friends and that Jack knows investments well. Like, I have no idea where the general gets his information from, but he's clearly bigging up his son and bigging up himself by association. The others want to know the latest news from Paris on the war and on Napoleon. And they hear that Jack traveled by the cartel. The cartel, said the stockbroker, who had missed the first mention of it, understands investment, said the general, and they both looked at Jack. Jack has to drink along with them. Poor old Jack, he's doing his duty here. Drinking along glass for glass provides some platitudes about the war. Even in his cups, he has to step very carefully around the possibility of commenting on the prospects for peace because he knows that that's a no-no. He declines their invitation to go to Vauxhall. And my, um, Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens in, in the Regency area was this uh, area south of the river that was kind of a uh, a hangout for the relatively wealthy but not terribly choosy and moralistic (laughs) middle classes of London here. So the Museum of London's website describes as Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens in the Regency era as part art gallery, part fashion show, and part brothel. Wow. (laughs) So I think as a a place for an evening's entertainment for the rather sordid and flash General Aubrey and his rather sordid and flash friends, Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens is a really well-chosen reference. Great work. So Jack declines that invitation, says he's certainly not dressed for it, and and he makes his goodbyes. Thank you for my wine, sir, said Jack to his father. Gentlemen, good night. He bowed, and with his eye fixed sternly upon the door, he steered straight for the open space, upright, rigid, never breathing, and never deviating an inch from his course. (laughs) <laughs> I, I don't I don't know how many folks out there listening can kind of you right. know, relate to that. Right. Right. I've had just a few too many drinks at a business conversation here and uh, or or, you know, even with friends. But I've got to somehow be steady on to that door and get out of here to my Uber or Lyft here. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to write my presentation for tomorrow. I mean, got to write my presentation for tomorrow. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my gosh. Oh, and we're at the end of chapter four here. Yeah. And what was supposed to be information with a close hold 
just for Jack and Stephen is now right. in the hands of not only Jack's closest friends, but Jack's rather licentious and loose-tongued father and his closest and rather shaky-looking friends. What's going to happen when they get their hands on this information? What's going to happen when they start exploiting this information and their money lands in the market? <sighs> so, lots to anticipate there for Jack. What about Stephen as well? Right. I mean, we had a couple mentions of Stephen in this chapter, but you know, we're back in London now. How many? You know, how long is this whole thing brewing with Stephen and Diana and Mrs. Fielding been going on? It's been seems like forever. And you know, I'm back on Team Stephen. So could we get back to this? I mean, I'm glad Jack's in the stock market. Hope he makes some money. I'm not sure what all is going on here, but I want to know what happens with Stephen and Diana here. Yeah. And we're in London. We just did that genuflection to the Admiralty. But speaking of Stephen, sir, you know what? What about Sir Joseph Blaine here? What what's going on here with this secret Admiralty war? I mean, we just had, you know, we saw Andrew Ray and a friend kind of in their black coats walking into Buttons. Let's, you know, kind of. I, I want to know more. And and I said at the very beginning of this stuff, you know. The surprise. My God, the surprise. That's it. That's all we get to hear. So a little bit of a letdown. Yeah. Well, Mike, uh, we're only a few chapters into the book. We're feeling let down now, but maybe there's more to come. Maybe we should turn another page. What do you say, Mike, next week to just a tiny bit more Patrick O'Brien? Oh, I would love that of all things. write my presentation for tomorrow i mean gotta write my presentation for tomorrow (laughs) exactly oh my gosh